Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. It's good to be back with you. Mary Lee and I had a wonderful visit with Ben and Michael, our daughter and our son-in-law in Cebu City in the Philippines. And uh, this is Mother's Day. And as I was getting ready to preach this morning, I read a, a post on our Warhorn Media site. You might not know it exists. Look, you know, Google Warhorn Media. And the post was put up by um, my daughter, Michael. Let me read to you an excerpt from, uh, from Michael's blog post, because it's, it's a perfect lead-in to our text, which is Psalm 131. She says this, she says, of all the positions of authority in this world, now when I say that, all the positions of authority in the world, you don't expect the next thing to be motherhood, do you? But, you you know, often I think that the reason mothers are, (laughs) the reason mothers are told to submit to their husbands is because of the authority of motherhood. Do you understand this? The authority of motherhood is innate. It's like in your DNA. You know the expression, mama ain't happy, nobody happy? I often tell wives that they should not cut their husband off at the knee by lifting their eyebrow in front of the children. And I've I've said this to you before, all it takes on the part of a mother is this. Are you watching carefully? Did anybody see it? That's all it takes. And the husband's dead in the water. We all agreed? We're all agreed. Okay, so Michael starts her blog post saying this. On of all the positions of authority in this world, there is no office that is imbued by nature with such tenderness and intimacy as motherhood. There's a reason that we're moved to tears when we watch planet Earth and see a mother elephant and her baby get separated in a dust storm. Look around at your children, whatever their ages, you carried them in pregnancy or carried the burden of their marginalized existence in your hearts in the case of adopted children. You nursed them as infants, stroked their applesauce-matted hair as toddlers. You read to them as children and listen to them as teenagers. At Mother's Day especially, the tenderness is palpable. You can taste it. You can feel it. Tenderness. Authority and tenderness. Our text this morning is maybe one of the tenderest psalms in the book of Psalms. It's by David, the man after God's own heart, Psalm 131, verses 1 to 3, the whole psalm, three verses. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. 
like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, would you please use this psalm and your servant David and the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to give us contentment and humility. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see that this is called a song of ascents. Psalms 120 through 134 are all labeled songs of ascents. Now, what does it mean to be a psalm or a song of ascent? Well, it depends on who you listen to. Um, Martin Luther thinks that these 15 psalms were sung by the priests at the top of the stairs of the temple. And thus, a higher degree or place than the people. So they were songs of ascent. All right? Christopher Wordsworth thought that these were songs that were sung by the Israelites, the the sons of Israel, as they returned from captivity in Babylon. That as they ascended back to home, left the uh, humiliation and oppression of Babylon behind. They were going up to Jerusalem, right? That's what he thought it meant. Um... Calvin, interestingly, says that he thinks that these are called songs of ascent because the music ascends in terms of of the note, uh, the pitch, and that this is the degrees that are spoken of. The Hebrew word here translated ascents is derived from the verb to ascend or to go up higher. And so the musical notation is what is meant by the songs of ascents. So you can see there's no agreement on what it means to be songs of ascents. Something is ascending, we know that. Whether the thoughts through the meter, the people of God as they return home from captivity, the priests as they ascend the stairs of the temple, the notes of the musical accompany, or the families of Israel as they go on pilgrimage three times a year up to worship at the temple of Jerusalem, and that's the one I prefer that these are songs that people would sing as they went on pilgrimage three times a year, they were to go up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And so they'd sing these songs. Now, it's kind of sentimental that I think that's what it is because when I was a kid, my parents had a big station wagon and every summer my father had to, we were very, very poor. And my father had to find a way to give us a vacation without spending any money. And so the way he did that was he took speaking engagements at Cedar Campus and Bear Trap Ranch and various Christian camps. And so if we were, for instance, going to Bear Trap Ranch above Colorado Springs on Cheyenne Mountain, we had a long drive from Philadelphia out there. And in that drive, my sister and I would lie in the back of the station wagon. No, there were no seat belts, no side curtain bags, no booster seats, no nothing. We'd just lie back there, look out the window, and then she'd teach me to sing hymns. And I would sing alto, she'd sing soprano. And so I learned an awful lot of hymns that way. That's how we would pass the what? It was probably 
I'm going to guess 20 to 30 hours of driving, right? Well, the Israelites were required to go up to Jerusalem and worship at the temple twice, three times a year. And so many people think these were the songs that they sang on their way up to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. Regardless, we also know from the heading that this is a psalm of David. And we know that David is a man after God's own heart. So David is the one that is making this prayer. David is the one that has recorded his prayer to God. Now, how does he begin his prayer? He begins it by addressing God, not as God. He addresses him according to the name that God, the only true God, identified himself personally with the children, the sons of Israel. And that's the name Yahweh. Now, I say Yahweh, it can be Jehovah, it can be YHWH. There's a, there, there are a lot of different ways of referring to it. The reason you don't read that in the text is long ago, the church adopted a habit of indicating that that was the Hebrew word behind here. And the way they, the way they communicated that was by putting Lord in upper, upper caps. So if you look at the text you see it's, it's all capitals. What that indicates is that the Hebrew is Yahweh. Now, I'm going to just say Yahweh. I grew up with my dad reading from the Jerusalem Bible, which is, it always used Yahweh, which I, I would prefer. Um, but the Jews did not want to refer to the word, and so they'd have circumlocutions. Uh, the, the shrewders have circumlocutions to address their parents because it's part of South African culture. You never, ever, ever, ever say you to your parents. It's disrespectful. And so you would speak to your father, dad, does dad want, okay, dad, does dad want ice in dad's drink? Let's say water, okay, yeah. So dad, does dad want ice in dad's drink? This is the way that the Hebrews handled this Yahweh. They would not say it. They would not uh, ever say the name of God. And so that's why you see this weirdness that it comes down to us as Lord. That's not what it is, all right? It is the personal, intimate name that the only true God has revealed himself to Israel. And David begins by worshiping and addressing himself to God, Yahweh. It's as if he's saying, our God, you know, my God. Now, following the name of the one he's addressing with his prayer, David begins the prayer itself. And he says this, my heart is not proud. Now, you know, we've heard it enough times. It's just kind of, well, David's heart isn't proud. But what if I were to say that to you? You know, Denver, my heart is not proud. Why are you laughing, Stephen? <laughs> Why are you laughing, Doug? Well, the reason we're laughing is it's one thing to read it in scriptures, another thing for a human being to actually say it to us. My heart is not proud. Yikes. 
that's almost certainly the man that is proud, right? At the end of his life, the Wheaton Alumni Magazine interviewed Dad Taylor. And at the end of the article, they recorded that they asked him, at the end of your life, is there anything you're proud about? And Dad said, well, some people say I'm humble, and that makes me proud. <laughs> and so here David is saying, my heart is not proud. And it's not just that King David is saying that generally, it's that he's saying it in prayer to God. Do you pray to God, my heart is not proud? Well, if you do, it's an aspirational prayer. In other words, it's a request, right? Did David have reason to be proud? David had unbelievable reason to be proud. For one thing, David was a marksman with the slingshot, right? We know about Goliath, but what about the bears and the lions? In other words, David could have held his own with any working man. David was no slouch when it came to courage, when it came to hunting, when it came to things that every man recognizes as being manly. As a matter of fact, when it came to killing men, David was very good because you remember what the women of Israel said when David would come into the city. They'd refer to their king, Saul, and they'd say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul didn't like that. And then you think about the fact that he's not just a good hunter, he's not just a good warrior, but he makes all of the like hipster church planning dudes with their, you know, he makes them look completely unoriginal and contrived by his artistry. You know, he's a musician and he's a poet. You know, we have all these psalms written by him. David had a lot of reasons to be proud, didn't he? A lot of reasons to be proud. And remember that when David says, my heart is not proud, he is speaking to God, and there's no secret from God. God knows our innermost thoughts. God knows us inside and out, doesn't he? And David says, my heart is not proud. Now you know why God loved David. When I was uh, preparing, I was thinking that even when it comes to his adultery, you read his public confession of sin. And you know, women can hate him, but what a confession. What a confession of sin. My heart is not proud. And what is the heart? The heart is the inward, most central of who we are, what we are. The heart is the seat of the soul. The heart is David. And he says, my heart is not proud. And then he says, nor my eyes haughty. Well, as the heart is the seat of the affections, the seat of the soul, the deepest part of man, David then is pleading his humility to God that deep down inside he is not proud, but also that his eyes aren't haughty. Now, what's the significance of switching from the heart to the eyes? Well, 
your eyes indicate what your heart is, right? And so um, if you follow somebody's eyes, you know what they love. You know what they lust after. You know what they worship. The eyes give away the heart. David says not only that his heart is not proud, but also that his eyes are not haughty. Now, we might think that this means that David goes around with his head down and his eyes lowered. You know, cultures are, um, are very different in how they handle eyes. In some cultures, direct eye contact is an insult. Whereas I go around all the time telling young men, look me in the eyes. Look the person you're talking to in the eyes. Because in America, for a young man to not give eye contact is disrespectful. So it's the opposite with, with Asia and America, right? But nobody questions that eyes communicate serious things, right? <laughs> nobody questions that. And so in America today, there are many people who will not give you eye contact, and why? They won't give you eye contact because they're copying a posture as being humble. This is why. You know, I'm, 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 I'm broken. You know, I'm humble. I, 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 am, I am Uriah Heep. I am your, I am your servant. I am not worthy of giving you eye contact. You know, and it's complete, it's complete lie. Stephen has helped me, Steve, Pastor Baker, one of our pastors, in, in understanding that some of the proudest people there are are people who make a big show of their humility. And interestingly, um, do all of you know of the treasury of David? Do you know about the treasury of David? It's this unbelievable commentary on the book of Psalms, and it's done by Charles Spurgeon. Have you heard of Charles Spurgeon? Anybody heard of Charles Spurgeon? Good. A lot of you Baptists out there, aren't there? <laughs> Charles Spurgeon's the prince of preachers. If you're a preacher and you read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, when you're done, you want to shoot yourself. <laughs> because you just realize what an idiot you are. It's like, well, it's interesting that it is commentary on this psalm that Spurgeon cites preachers from past centuries who talk about this very thing of, of how so many people protest that they're humble by not, by not looking up and how fake it is, and he warns against it. So listen, if you want to say your heart is humble and if you want to say that your eyes are not proud, all right, what you need to realize is you can't change what your eyes communicate by looking down or looking up. Everybody knows what you are. Everybody knows what you are. Okay? You can't hide it. And David, speaking to God who knows everything, David says, Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Now, was this normal for kings in Scripture? 
Let me read to you about two other kings in Scripture. Let's see whether they were humble of heart and whether they had eyes that weren't haughty. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. He reflected. <laughs> he reflected. So we look at that and we think, well, you know, if I was in a position of authority and king over Babylon, maybe I would have given myself to the same thing. And Poor, poor man, that, that'll teach him to be a king. If he'd known what he was doing, he would have stayed humble, out working the soil in the hinterlands, his raised beds. Then he would never have been tempted to be proud. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, when you fly to Asia, one of the things that happens is you get smacked by jet lag. And it really does discombobulate you. I'm discombobulated now because I've been up since 2.30 this morning. I realized at 2.30 this morning, there was no hope. I was just going to get up, all right? So what did I do when I was lying in bed trying to sleep over in Cebu City? Oh, well, Doug and I and, and my grandson, Nathan, my grandson Jonathan, my grandson Josiah, right before we left, the day before, we planted my garden. And so every single day, what I did was I, I, I was there in bed, wide awake, and I would just, I would start with the basil. And I'd think of the three seedlings, and then the seeds, that we but both seedlings and seeds. Then I'd move over to the tomatoes, and I'd see each tomato in its cage, and then I'd think of the cucumbers. Then I'd go over to the potatoes, and then I'd go to the onions, and then I'd go to that one little squash at the very end of the potatoes. Remember the squash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'd go over to the lettuce, and then another row of lettuce, and then a row of carrots, and then a row of beets, and then, if I was still asleep, or awake, then I would think about the dahlias we planted. And then if I was still awake, I'd think about the poppies we planted. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And you know, you think that's stupid. Nobody thinks that way about a garden, but let me tell you, that garden gave me much joy while I lay there in bed, unable to sleep. Listen, the poor are just as proud as the rich. The short, just as proud as the tall. The short man's proud of his shortness. The tall man's pride, proud of his, of his height. 
Every man has his kingdom. And you think, well, women don't. And then I say, oh, man, women and their children. Ho, ho, ho. How many, how many of us destroy our children because of our pride in our children? You know, I can remember when Michael asked Mary Lee and me if she could get married. But she hadn't finished college. And we all know that no life is worth living if you haven't been to college, right? We all, we all know that, right? Right? So I knew that Michael, her life was not worth living if she didn't have a college degree. And so I was like, no. No, Ben. Back off, Ben. That was the man that wanted to marry her. You know? And he was older, and he'd done college, so you know, it didn't matter to him if she had college. But Michael was the one that was going to make me famous. It was not that she was brighter than anybody else. <laughs> it was just the rest of you hadn't quite accomplished it yet. This is my daughter, Heather. And so then one day, Michael came to me and she said, Daddy, I'm only trying to do what you've taught me to do. And I was thinking, well, what I've taught you to do is to be proud and to get a college degree, and to make me famous. To show everybody how bright your father is. Now, I know none of you ever think this way, and it might make you sick in the stomach to hear your pastor talking this way, but I'm just trying to be honest, okay? And so she said, Daddy, we're only, I'm only trying to do what you taught me to do. Well, I taught you to get good grades. I taught you to play the flute. I taught you to stand up straight. What do you mean, what I taught you to do? She didn't say anything else. She didn't explain her words. Of course, I knew exactly what she meant, which was that I had always taught the children that there's no higher calling than motherhood. There's no higher calling than motherhood. That their mother is not a mother because she can't be a physician. I knew what Michael was saying. But she had a father who was determined to make a name for himself through her. Right? Right? You all know this? Hmm? Nebuchadnezzar, is this not Babylon the Great? Is this not Michael the Great? Which I myself have formed as a child. You still do need to go to college, you know. But, I, I didn't, but, but that's another issue. <laughs> we'll get back to that later, okay? Are you coming over for lunch? Good, okay. <laughs> 
Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And, and then it says, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Listen, we, we get so uptight about who the next president of the United States is going to be, right? God's the one that chooses the rulers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't argue and debate and vote and everything, or not vote, depending on your principles. But God chooses the rulers. He gives authority to men. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? But at the end of that period, now this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You see who he's praising now? He's praising God. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty." and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, so all the greatness is back. Now what does he have to say? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. When we think of our rulers today and those seeking our vote to make them our next president, those, the one who is our current president, there is no fear of God before their eyes, and therefore there is no humility. They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one, President Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump. All of them. They have all taken their stand against the law of God. Make no mistake about this. Donald Trump, President Obama, Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, they have all taken their stand against God. And if you need me to explain this to you, I'm not trying to be sectarian, I'm just simply giving you an objective statement of fact. All in their own ways, somewhat different, both in their personal lives and in their businesses and governing. Each of them has said concerning God and his anointed one, our Lord Jesus Christ, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And what is their end? Well, 
Concerning such proud men and women, Scripture warns this in 1 Peter 5.5, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For why? For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Okay? God is opposed to the proud. When we're proud, we make God our enemy. And when we're humble, we make God our friend. Now, what does that mean in terms of our lives? Well, what it means is the next thing that's the next things that are said. First of all, when we're humble and when our eyes are not haughty, we go on and say, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I don't involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. It's rare that I can say that that's how I think and feel, but I remember after 9-11, I was so relieved that I was not the President of the United States. I had no clue what should be done, absolutely none. And I prayed for President Bush, and I was so thankful I was not President Bush. That's rare for me. But David says that he does not, what? Involve himself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now, what are the things that are too difficult for me? Do you know the Peter Principle? In organizational uh, theory, Peter Principle says that every person will be promoted to their level of incompetence. And the reason this is done is that the judgment of what position they should be promoted to is made on the basis of their success in their previous position rather than their gifting for the next position. Well, if they've done that well, then... And in the church, this is just as much a rule as it is in, in, in corporations. For instance, in the church, everybody knows that after you've put in your time as a deacon, you've earned it. It's time to be an elder, right? Right? We all know this. But what if, what if a deacon actually has the gift of compassion but doesn't have the gift of discernment? Well, you take a deacon who has the gift of compassion and you put that deacon into the office of elder where the essence of it is discernment, all right? And it's not a good, it's not a good fit. It's not a good fit at all. Because most of what elders have to do is spend their time meeting and talking with individuals saying no. Sometimes saying no for years and years and then finally excommunicating someone. Usually it takes years of elders working with somebody before they're excommunicated. No, 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 no. But why? Because, 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 because they have to have discernment. And yet, in the church, many of us 
specialize in things that are too difficult for us. <laughs> I mean, isn't that funny? I could remember, I was thinking about this, I didn't use this illustration in the first service, but I can remember that, you know, when Mary Lee and I were growing up, we were in a church of, I don't know how many people, maybe, I don't know, 600. And regularly, this older woman would get up and for a period of time hold everyone in that sanctuary hostage with her awful voice. And every time she sang, we would think, what on earth? Why doesn't the music minister tell her that she can't sing? And to this day, I don't know why. I have no clue why he couldn't tell her she couldn't sing. And so she'd get up and warble off pitch and shrill, and it just drove us wild. Well, what was she? She was someone who concerned herself with things that were too difficult for her. She couldn't sing. Listen, it's Mother's Day, right? Right? It's Mother's Day. And you think about what every Christian mother and father does with their bright daughter today, and what they do is they send her off to school, have her major in biology so that she can be pre-med. And then they're so excited when she takes the, oh, and she got into, she got into Johns Hopkins. And then she does her residency at Mass General. And then she gets hired at a teaching hospital. And then she lowers herself to have a baby. And then the baby goes into daycare and she spends her breaks in the break room pumping. And you know, if I want to drive some of you to a frenzy, all I have to do is say this. Are you ready? Hold your, hold your seat. Okay, a woman's place. He said it. I knew our pastor was Donald Trump. He said a woman's place. <laughs> and so what happens is every daughter feels the aspirations of her father. And instead of getting married, she completes college, then she goes to law school, she edits the review, she clerks for... <laughs> oh my goodness. It's so disgusting that we as Christians act this way and think this way. And so am I saying that my daughters and your daughters couldn't be justices on a Supreme Court? <laughs> no! That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, why would they? Why would they give themselves to the difficulty of trying to be a mother and a Supreme Court justice at the same time? That's too difficult. It's too difficult. Humility is not trying to do things that are too difficult. You mothers, you know when you 
are aspirational, and so you try things that are too difficult. You know, isn't that the, the central text of every young mother's club on Facebook? You know, that one woman one-ups another woman with her wonderful recipes and her wonderful decorations and the wonderful dress she made for her, ah, rah, rah, and the diet she has her children on, rah, 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 rah. and it's a bunch of women competing on Facebook. It's too difficult. If you try to impress other women as a young mother, you're going to fail. <laughs> they won't be impressed or they'll hate you. Now, take your pick. <laughs> Too difficult. What is required of us? That's why I love Jesus. Jesus doesn't require the things out of us that our mother does. He doesn't require the things out of us that our own ego requires. What Jesus requires of us is simple. He requires that we calm ourselves and, and still ourselves and rest against his breast as a wean baby. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, because we have a bunch of because we have a bunch of break rooms filled with breast pumps. That's the world we live in, okay? We have no clue the significance of this. So what I thought I would do is read a Baptist from a past age, what he says about this text. He says this, this is Spurgeon. He says, there must be an end to the suckling period. Now, I, I saw an article yesterday that said that nobody likes to say the word moist. Did any of you see that article? Okay, well, if you don't like to say moist, you really don't like to say suckling, right? I mean, that's not high on the list of words that we like to trot out in sermons, right? You know, suckling. Okay, there must be an end to the suckling period, and then a battle begins. The child is denied his comfort, and therefore frets and worries, flies into anger, sinks into sulking, it is, this child is facing its first great sorrow. And this child is in sore distress. And yet time brings not only alleviations, but the ending of the conflict. Before long, the boy is quite content to find his nourishment at the table with his brothers. And he feels no lingering wish to return to those... Or, <laughs> Cover your ears. He feels no need to return to those dear fountains. This is Spurgeon, guys. You know, I didn't make this up. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about cows today. <laughs> okay, those dear fountains from which he once sustained his life. He's no longer angry with his mother, but buries her, his head in that very bosom after which he pined so grievously. He is weaned on his mother. He is weaned on his mother. And so when David says this, surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. What David is saying is that he stopped making demands of God. He stopped thinking that he knows better than God. He started listening to God. He's put his ear up against God's chest and he hears the heartbeat of God. And that's enough.
That's enough. He's not living for his in-laws. He's not living for his own ego. He's not living for what the world thinks of him. People, if we are going to live a life that's pleasing to God, we have to be done with this world. We can't please God and please anybody in this world anymore. Wake up. It's over. It's over. The minute you decide to follow God, the minute you decide that you will live to honor God, you will see that the two roads have diverged. It is over, and you will be scorned by the world. And this is especially true if you're a woman. Okay? And what does David say? David says he's like a wean child with his mother. What's a wean child? It's a child that's given up and is content to not drink, to not suck, but to sit there. And then he waits. He waits until his mother feeds him. And this is what David is saying, the godly, humble man is like. He's a man who is not trying to tell God what to do and when to do it. He doesn't have an agenda. He has just submission, just submission. He's not trying to impress anybody. He's just trying to be obedient, okay? Okay. Can we be obedient? In the first service, there were visitors. I knew something about them. I'd never met them, but I'd heard a little bit because they checked us out. And I thought to myself before I got into the pulpit, it's like, why do they come on Mother's Day? Could they not have come on some other day? And I could just tell you precisely at what point in the sermon, he was like, you know, I know what I'm doing. I get up here, I go, pew! And the sad thing isn't me dying. The sad thing is I know all of your hopes die too. <laughs> you know, It's like, how about we get all the visitors from Bloomington to come on Mother's Day? Wouldn't that be special? Because we have such a unique message on Mother's Day. It's so hopeful and helpful. Come on, laugh. How many Mother's Day have some of you sat through? You can count them one by one, can't you? Yeah, you've had eight. Okay, you've had eight. But listen, the beautiful thing is that King David is speaking of God as his mother and speaking of himself as the baby that God is holding. And he's saying, I am absolutely content. I am not screaming. When I was over in Cebu City, right, you know, little, I call her Samantha. That's not her name. I know it's not her name. Her name is Clementine, okay? And that little girl, she, she, she had this noise that she did. <laughs> I don't know what they call it. I'm sure mothers have a name for that noise. But it was a noise saying, I am not impressed. I am bothered and I don't like what's going on, and I want to nurse. And we would be cooped up in this little van. It would be 98 degrees, 98% humidity. 
my knees were shoved into the front dashboard. The air conditioning was barely staying ahead. There was more humanity in this tiny little Suzuki van than you could ever imagine. And then that little girl. And, and it got so bad that I would, three times I took my fingers in front of everybody and I just bored them as deeply into my ears as I possibly could. Samantha was not impressed. And listen, that's the way a lot of us are with God. An awful lot of us are going to go to our graves bitter and angry. And we don't, we can't, we must not do that. It's not a life of faith to squall in the face of God or his people. We need to receive what he chooses to give us. And every one of us, every single one of us has things that are like having our mother take away our ability to nurse. Every one of us has things like that. And those are the places where we see if we have faith. I can name them, you can name them. And you know, pastors and elders and older women of this church, you know who gives us the greatest joy? The people that give us the greatest joys are the ones that are like a weaned baby, quiet, at, at, at the fountainhead of God. And we look at the things they've suffered and we see their faith. And it's so unbelievably strengthening to us. Listen, an awful lot of you have had terrible disappointments in your life. Terrible disappointments. But you know they've come from God. And God never fails to be a good steward of our grief and our pain and our suffering. If we're honest, we will admit that it's when we've been weaned, okay, when we've had those fountains taken from us, that the most incredible things happen in our lives. Where we most clearly see God and his wisdom. Come on, you know that's true. And so, put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in being done with what you're suffering. The minute that suffering's over, if God loves you, he's going to give you more. Because he disciplines those he loves. And so have faith. Have faith. Can you have faith? Quiet yourself. Quiet yourself. Put your hope in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your discipline. Thank you for taking away the milk. Thank you for moving us to meat. Father, we pray that you will find us submissive, obedient, trusting.
Give us faith, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.